Early in the first century, God's people knew Him to be a provider, ruler, and benefactor. However, they had lost touch with the idea that God was also their Father. Well, in 1 John 3, the Apostle John wanted to remind them of this. And so he wrote these famous words, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. Back in 2000, 2018, I think it was, in 2018, I had an opportunity to travel to a location that Jesus had once referred to as the gates of hell. Now, why was this area referred to as the gates of hell? In Caesarea Philippi, there's this large rock outcropping. You can see it from some distance around. Now, at the base of this rock slab, there is a pit, and water would pool and rush and descend down into this hole. And as you looked at it, as you look in it, it's like this gaping maw, this gaping mouth in which the water would go down. And the pagans looked at this, as pagans do. They came up with a pagan understanding, and they said, well, clearly this is the mouth to the underworld. So that was the common understanding at the time. Back in the days of the Canaanites, Baal worship was done at this place. Human sacrifice, all manner of evils. This truly was the gates of hell with regards to what had happened there. Now, in the the first century or in the years preceding that, the Canaanites were gone, but the Greeks had come in. Now, the Greeks loved them some gods. The Greeks had all manner of different gods, and one of their gods was a real weird thing, kind of a freakish god. His name was Pan. Does anyone remember anything about Pan? Well, Pan was half man and half what? Goat. What an odd thing. I think I'll worship a half man, half goat. So they had this half man, this half goat named Pan. And Pan worship was what was done at this location, the gates of hell, and the years up to the time of Christ. There was also a temple not far away where the Greeks had worshipped Zeus. So all this is going on there, which again begs the question, why did Jesus take his disciples there? Well, if you remember the text, you remember what happened. Jesus took his disciples there because this was going to be the site of a great object lesson. He took them there to the gates of hell in order to make this statement. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail before the church. So he's looking at his disciples and he says, the church that will come out of this ministry. And this is the first time that the word church is even used. The church that will come forth from your efforts, the kingdom of God here on earth. You see the gates of hell? Well, not only the gates, but hell itself will not stand against the church in the time yet to come. So he brings this small contingent, this rabble of disciples, so to speak. And he says that what God the Father is going to do through you is going to be so mighty that all this paganism is going to be washed away. And in due time, that's exactly what happened in Caesarea Philippi. If you go to Caesarea Philippi right now, no one's worshiping Pan. No one's worshiping Baal. No one's worshiping Zeus. All those things are in the dustbin of history, the trash can of false beliefs. But Christianity, which started with these disciples, Christianity, you know how many Christians are on the globe today? 2.38 billion. I don't know if there's 2.38 pan worshipers, but there's 2.38 billion Christians on this globe. Truly, the gates of hell have not prevailed against the growth of the church and the captain of our salvation, which is Jesus Christ. Now, with all that said, when I was there, what got me was they have some of the outcroppings where the pan idols were and such, and we looked at some history books of what this might have looked like back in the time, and I thought to myself, this is the weirdest thing. Whoever thought that worshiping Baal or worshiping Pan, you know, this goat god was a good thing, or Zeus. Zeus was notoriously aloof and dispassionate. No one ever said in the history of mankind, behold what manner of love Zeus has for his children. But, but of course, they would say that of Yahweh. The distinction is this. The pagan gods were bad. 
The pagan gods were wicked. It's weird that anyone would ever have turned to them. Now, throughout that age in the first century, although it was weird that anyone would turn to half goats to worship, it was commonplace for the Roman Empire in Christ's time to the east, to the Parthenians that were to the north, to the Egyptians who were still off to the south. They worshiped these distant, aloof gods continually. With that said, in Israel, the Israelites had a benefit that those pagan communities didn't. The Israelites had this benefit. And the benefit was that they were worshiping the right God, albeit in the wrong way. They were worshiping the one true God. But here's the thing. Just like the pagans, the Israelites of Christ's day had begun to see God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. They'd begun to see him as distant and aloof, just the way the pagans saw their gods. If you had asked an Israelite in the first century to give some of the attributes of God, well, they would have said, well, he's the king, he's mighty, creator they might have come up with, provider, benefactor, something like that. They might have said these things. But you know what word they wouldn't have said in the first century? If you went to a Jew in the first century and asked them to describe God for me, you know what word they would not have said? The word father. That would not have been in their lexicon. That's not a word that they would have used. And because of that, when Jesus opened his famous prayer, his most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, what are the very first words he used out of the gate? Our Father who art in heaven. That was revolutionary because in the first century, there was no one who looked at God that way. And even in Israel, where they should have known better, they didn't see God in that way. But Jesus regularly reminded his people, starting with his disciples, that God is a Father. He's a father, not just in the sense that he created mankind, but he's a father in the sense that he adopts children unto his own, just as he has taken Israel, the least of all people, and made them his special people. Now, throughout the New Testament, Jesus regularly talked to God the Father as Father. In all but one of his prayers, Jesus, when he refers to God, speaks to him as Father. All told across the New Testament, he uses the word Father a hundred times. That was unusual to the extreme in his context. So with that said, the word father stands out. The word father stands out. But you know what's interesting? In 1 John 3, the word that John focuses on is not only father, but the word children. You see, it's one thing to shock the people of the first century and refer to God as a father, but it's even a greater shock to refer to fallen, sin-stained wretches like you and I as the children of this thrice holy God. And in 1 John 3, that's exactly what John's going to do. And he's going to explain how and why as we work through the text. So let's go back to verse 1. I'm going to split it in two parts. But let's start with verse 1. I'll call it 1a. And we'll see the keystone statement that John makes here. He says this, verse 1. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed or granted unto us that we should be called the children of God. All right. In Luke 15, Jesus told one of his most famous parables. The most famous parable is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, do you remember this parable, the parable of the prodigal son? Well, let me give you the shorthand understanding of what this was. If you remember right, there was this father. He had this great land, this great kingdom, and he had a son. He actually had more than one son, but one of his sons was wayward. And this son looked around at all that his father was offering, and he said, you know, I think I want something more. I think I want something different. He had sin and rebellion and rejection on his heart, and so he goes out you know, to sow his wild oats, to do all the things that he wants to do. He goes out and he does that for a period of time. And then one day he realizes, hey, this isn't so grand. This isn't working out so well. One day he realizes this is actually just terrible. I'm doing all the things I wanted to do and it's led me to the pit. I'm now looking at the hogs and I'm envious of what hogs are eating. Maybe everything's gone so terribly for me, but maybe I can go back. Maybe I can go back to my father's house. But then he has a second thought and the thought is this, but if I do go back, 
he can't possibly love me the way that he once did because he knows what I've done. He knows how I turned my back upon him. He knows how I rejected him. He knows how I dove head first into a world of sin and iniquity. He's going to know that, and because he's going to know that, he can't possibly love me, but maybe, just maybe, he'll allow me in the door. Maybe the back door, maybe I can be a servant. Maybe he'll allow me to be a servant in his house. And so he starts back. He starts back to his father's house. In Luke 15, we see the father's response. Do you remember what it is? In Luke 15, the father, rather than sitting there at the door doing this, what does the father do? Well, number one, he doesn't just stand there. The father rushes across the field. He sees his son. He sees his prodigal son. He sees his wayward son. He sees one that he loves. And he demonstrates that love and that forgiveness by running to him. He doesn't wait for him to come to him bowing and scraping. He rushes to him. And when he gets there, he falls upon his son. He kisses him upon the neck. He gives him the signet ring. He says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son is back. That's the response that we see in the parable of the prodigal son. But what we sometimes forget is the son's response. So the father does all that stuff, and the son, what does he do? Well, the son, he he cries out in shame. He can't believe that this is the response he's receiving because he feels so unworthy of it. He knows what he's done, and he's sure his father knows what he's done, and because his father knows what he's done, he is sure that he can't possibly love him. And so he cries out, even as his father's holding him, he cries out, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son thought he was disqualified on the basis of his iniquity. The son thought that he had lost his father's love and his own status in his father's house. His transgressions and his mind had separated him from his father, and yet right there was the proof that there was no separation at all. The proof was this, that the father was holding him, even as he felt unworthy to be held. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that the son didn't understand, and here's the thing that sometimes we don't understand when we think of our heavenly father. No matter what this child, had done, this child of this father, no matter what he had done, the things he had done could not, did not, would not, will not change the relationship that he had with the father. Because the father's relationship with the child was not based on the works of the son, but something else, something different. To the father in this parable, this child, even as he had been wayward, he was the apple of his father's eye, deeply loved deeply loved by the Father. So the question is, given how wretched this young man had been and all the things he had done, behold, what manner of love can that be? And the short answer is this. It's a father's love. Because that's what fathers do, or at least that's what they're supposed to do. What manner of love can look at a lifetime of transgressions and rebellion? And you say, I see what you've done, I know what you've done, and yet I still love you. What kind of love can cut through years, maybe even decades of rejection? What kind of love can possibly be extended in those circumstances in spite of all the reasons not to? Well, the answer again is a father's love. And that's what John is declaring in verse 1. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. John, it's like he's reaching through and shaking the lapels of the sinner, maybe his own lapels. And he says, I know what I've done. You know what you've done cumulatively. It's like a foul stench that rises up to heaven. That all of our righteousness for what it is is like filthy rags. And yet, despite how terrible we are and how sin-stained we are and all the things we've done wrong and all the thoughts that we've had, despite all of that, behold, 
What manner of love? That God the Father doesn't just allow us to sneak in the back door of heaven, but he has a party when we get there. What manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God? If you have problems with esteem, if you have problems, you look in the mirror and you say, I don't like what I see there. I don't like the person looking back because I know what that person's done and what that person's thought. When God looks at us, he sees us through the righteousness of his own son, and we are the apples of his eye. If you have problems with esteem, it's a man-centered problem, but it is not a function of how God sees us. God has seen you at your very worst. Right now in your mind's eye, what is your very worst? For some of us, it comes to our mind like that. We know one thing we've done, or things, plural, we've done, that are especially egregious in our mind's eye. Well, guess what? God knows that too. God knows the worst things we've done. He knows the worst thoughts we've thought. He knows the worst words we've said. You know, we've mentioned before that if right now you were to name a few of the worst things you've ever done, everyone around you would shy away from you. If you were to name some of the things you've thought about them just in the past hour, they'd shy away from you because that's who we are. God knows all of it. God has been the recipient of our rejection and our faithlessness time and time and time and time and time again. And yet... He doesn't just allow us to sneak in the back door of heaven, but he says, you are my children, and I'm going to treat you as such. You are my family. That's what stopped the presses for John. That's where he said, behold. Anytime you hear the word behold in the Bible, that should cause you to stop. You hear the word behold, is something significant is being beheld. So he says, behold, consider this. It's not just that he's a father, which was cool. Don't get me wrong. We mentioned in the first century, they didn't have really a great understanding of the fatherhood of God, but they also had no context for understanding their relationship as his children. We take it more for granted because we've been immersed in an evangelical culture for years. They didn't have that. This was revolutionary. As we said at the outset, salvation's great outcome is not just that you get saved and that you get to go to heaven. These are wonderful things, mind you. Wonderful things. I hope it's true for all of us here this morning. The fact that we get to go to heaven is wonderful. But as we said before, it's not like you go to heaven, but you're there kind of on the outskirts, you know, kind of in a cottage on the outside of heaven's gates, kind of sitting there a bit. That's not the case. And it's not the case either that once you get there, you have a permanently strained relationship with God the Father. Instead, we see something entirely different. Salvation's great outcome is not simply that you get to go to heaven. Salvation's great outcome is that when you get there, you are family. You are family. That's something that we see in that parable, the prodigal son, where the father rushes across the field and takes him back into the house. All right, let's consider the second half of verse 1 now. The second half says this, Therefore, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. The word behold is always significant, but also, also so is the word therefore, because there's a conclusion being drawn in the subset of the verse that points to what was at the outset. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Have you ever heard someone make the statement that that boy is his father's son? That boy is his father's son. Now, what do they mean when they say that? What's that? They're similar. They're alike. That boy is his father's son. Now, that could be a pejorative. That could be a negative thing. That boy sure is like his old man. That boy is his father's son. Sometimes it's like saying, bless your heart. You know, it's something that doesn't really mean what you say it means. So that boy is his father's son. could be a negative. But it could also be a positive, depending on the father. Right? But the idea is that there's some similitude. There's something about the father and the son that is like-minded. Or when you see the one, 
you see the other. Well, that's what we see in the second part of verse 1, what's being implied in this statement. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. What's being implied in the statement is that the children of God will take on the attitudes and appetites and affections of God himself. Children take on the attitudes, appetites, and affections of their father. And if the world doesn't recognize the father, they won't recognize you either. If they don't have any space in their heart, if they don't have an understanding of God, if they have no affection and love or even understanding of God, then when you act in a godly way, they won't understand you either. And that's bluntly what he says much simpler, much faster than I just did. He says it clearly. Therefore, the world does not know him because it did not know him. The more you model godly behaviors in a darkened world, the more you will stand out in that world. The more frequently you model those behaviors in your day-to-day life, the more strange you'll become to the people in the world around you. That's both to your credit, your credit, and to their shame. All right, let's look now at verse 2. Verse 2, beloved. This is another great transition. He's great at transitions. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be on that side of the veil, but we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You know, there's a common phrase that's sometimes used to describe humanity, to describe humanity as a whole. Sometimes mankind is referred to as the great brotherhood of man or the universal brotherhood of man. Now, what do you think of that? Is that a good statement? There's a universal brotherhood of man? Are you waiting to see what I think about it? Here's how R.C. Sproul would look at it. He'd say the idea of a universal brotherhood of man He didn't like that term so much. He liked the universal neighborhood of man better. Now, here's what he meant by this. All mankind, everyone in this room and everyone down the street, is your neighbor. Okay? Fair enough. We've all been created in the image of God. That's true. There is a God who's created all of us. And as he's created all of us, we all bear his likeness, and we are all neighbors of one another. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who is your neighbor? Everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. But the distinction between neighbor and brother is important. You have neighbors, but your neighbors are not necessarily your brothers. Is that right? Sometimes you don't even like your neighbors. Of course, sometimes we don't like our brothers either. But with that said, neighbors and brothers are not the same thing. So R.C. Sproul liked to make the distinction. He said the neighborhood of man is different from the brotherhood of man. All men are your neighbors, but not all men are your brothers. Now, the word brother, just like the word father, is not thrown around lightly in Scripture. Whenever John or Paul or anyone talks about brothers in Christ, he's referring to brothers in Christ, not just to every person who bears the likeness of God, but to those who bear the seed of faith. That's a repeated distinction. We see a distinction that those who are brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ are those who have faith, but they are not all of mankind counted in that number. In John 1.12, Jesus himself made this clear. He said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. Do you hear the distinction? To those who have faith, to as many as those who have received him, many of those who have been regenerated, the Spirit has entered in, they've come to God in faith, he has given the right to become children of God. It's a volitional act that starts at the throne downward. It's not something that applies to all mankind universally. We see that in John 1. We see that elsewhere. Adoption is a volitional and limited act of God. It's not universal. Not everyone can rightly claim to be God's children, even if they can all claim that he has made us. You see, that's the distinction that's being made. The Pharisees, remember, they butchered this stuff all the time. They talked about our father Abraham, our father God, right? The Pharisees would talk about Abraham's our father, God's our father. You remember Jesus? He stopped them cold and he says, you don't throw that word around. 
He says, you want to play this game? All right, you are of your father. You are of your father. You got that right. But you know who your father is? Who? The, the devil. He says, you are of your father, but your father is the devil. So here's the thing. When father and brother are used in the epistles, when they're used in the gospels, they are used to address the family of God and not necessarily everyone on this planet. So adoption is not universal. However, here's the good news. It is irreversible. I don't know how many people know this. I'm adopted. Wonderful, wonderful, most godly parents. I don't even think about it that often. My sister's adopted too. It's one of the greatest blessings God has ever granted me is to adopt me into the family in which I now reside. With that said, one thing I can take to the bank is that won't change tomorrow because I know my parents' love for me and I know my love for them. So adoption is not universal. It doesn't apply to everyone equally. But in the case of at least my family and certainly the case of Scripture, it is irreversible. Nothing will change that. If you're a child of God today, there's nothing that can happen. Nothing, no force outside these doors, no force within your own heart that can wretch you out from God's hands, and you can't jump from those hands either. It will not change. In any case, verse 2 not only talks about our adoption, but it goes on to talk about our glorification. You see, God is in the business. He regenerates us, he changes our hearts, he adopts us into his family, and then he cleans us up, which is what we call sanctification. Now that sanctification will hit a terminal point. When we pass, we go into glory, and at that point we are glorified. And that's what he's referring to in verse 2. He's talking about our being remade in the image of the firstborn son. We don't know what that looks like right now, which is what John alludes to in verse 2, but in time we will. In Romans 8, Paul said it this way. He said, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. See that relationship? Firstborn, many brethren. Not everyone on the planet, but those who are brothers of Christ will be conformed into the image of the firstborn Son. That's your great purpose on this globe. That's why you're here, to be conformed in the image of the firstborn son. Now, you might delude yourself to thinking otherwise. The culture deludes itself into thinking otherwise. People generally tend to think that they're here to establish a name, power, fame, glory, what have you. Wrong. The reason that you are here is to grow in Christ-likeness to the degree that you will better reflect God's own son. I've shared this before because I've thought this through pastorally. God could care less if I was to preach to 10 people or a billion people. That's not the issue. The things I might accomplish or not accomplish are not the principal concern when I stand before him on that day. The principal concern is this. To what degree, to what degree have you come to reflect, to resemble my own son? At that moment, that's all that matters. The things that I've done are not the central factor. And they're not the central factor in your life either. What matters is to the degree that you are being remade to become more Christ-like tomorrow than you are today or yesterday. That's the great object of our life. That's what we're here to do. Glorify God and become more like his son. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the image of his son. You want a purpose in life? That's your purpose in life, to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, in verse 2, we see it's not been revealed exactly what that'll look like. John says it hasn't been revealed what this future state is like. And that can bring a lot of questions. We say, okay, okay, so I'm supposed to be more Christ-like. Okay, I get that. And then we start thinking practically, right? We say, all right, so we get to heaven. We get to heaven. And then we start trying to figure out what's that going to be like. We say, um, what age will I be there? Right? Have you ever thought that? How tall will I be there? 
How handsome will I be there, right? You wonder, how does this work? How is this going to work when I get there? What age will it be? What age will you be? What, you know, how is the relationship going to be? How tall? How handsome? How smart? What's this going to be like? Well, the short answer is we don't know. That's not explicitly laid out, but we do know this much, as is promised to us in verse 2, that when we get there, we shall become like, like, similitude, like our Savior. And whatever that entails, however tall, smart we might be, whatever that entails, becoming like Christ, that's promising. All right, let's look at our final verse this morning, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is Pure. Everyone who believes the things we've just said, everyone who says, I want to become more Christ-like, I do believe that, I do accept that, I do want that, then verse 3 tells you how. We start by saying, I'm going to be intentional in my walk. He who, what does it say? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Sanctification is a two-way street. God is committed to remaking you. The question is, are you? Well, he who has this hope will be inclined, will tend to work at it, to purify himself. Not perfectly. We all, it's like the stock market. We're up and down, up and down in terms of our sanctification and our growth. And yet there's a degree of commitment that we are to take to this. God's committed to him. He who started a good work will finish it. And yet there is some obligation that we also are to cleanse ourselves of the habits and appetites and attitudes that we have had. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, when my children... We're smaller than they are now. I took them for a walk down the beach. They were quite a bit smaller, but when my footsteps sang in the sand, here's what's cool. Is your dad, you're walking on the beach, you're going forward, and your kids are behind you, and everyone's looking for hermit crabs and like, or at least I'm looking to find something to show the kids, like, hey, look at this. Well, I look behind me as I'm walking. The kids are not looking for the critters so much. What they were doing was they were matching my steps in the sand. As I walk, they put their feet where my feet had been. That image is burned into my brain because it's so cool. But it's a picture of this, of what we see in here in verse 3. He who has this hope, he who loves the Father, he who considers himself as a child will attempt to walk in his Father's footsteps. If Jesus is your Savior, if Jesus is your King, if he is your elder brother, so to speak, then our obligation, our desire, our great hope is to put our footsteps, so to speak, where his have been set before him. And again, this is what we see in verse 3. He has this hope in him will purify himself as he is pure. You will seek to match the steps of our Savior. You're not going to do it perfectly. I hope that's not a spoiler. You're not going to be able to do it perfectly. But you are obligated to try, knowing that the Holy Spirit uplifts you even as you do so. This morning, as we look to wrap up, I would ask you, The concepts we've talked about this morning, I assume you get. God is a father and you're a child. That's not the hardest stuff to understand. But a reasonable question to ask yourself is that when people look at you as a child of the father, do they see the father? Have your steps in the eyes of a watching world begun to track with your savior? And if not, why not? And sometimes we have to do the soul work, so to speak, or be intentional in asking ourselves those sort of questions. We say, if someone was to look at me as a child of God, do they see the Father in any substantive way? And if the answer is no, then again, the question is, why not? What's preventing that? What's holding that back? We should, as children of God, resemble and reflect our Father more and more to the point that when people look at us, they see Him. That's the desire. Now, it applies to us as individuals, but again, as we close, it also applies to all y'all. It applies to the church. It applies to the body of Christ itself. It's not just as individuals we think this through, but it's to the church. When the world looks at the church, 
that the children collectively of God, do they see the attitudes and affections of the Father? Is that what we're known for? You know, the main objective for the church is not to become big, it's not building campaigns and all the things that can happen and are good if they do happen, but that's not necessarily the objective of the church. The objective of the church, the bride of Christ, is to cling to the groom. The objective of the son or daughter of Christ is to resemble the father. It's not necessarily for the church itself to get healthy and wealthy and powerful even in the eyes of the watching world, but rather to reflect our father and our king. When they see us collectively, they should see him. And if they don't, there's a problem. Now, one last note, when we talk about the doctrine of adoption, I'll add this thought because it's good to close on as we go into the Owl's Banquet to follow. When we talk about the doctrine of adoption, which we focused on this morning, it's been in our songs, it's been our various readings, it's been the focus of 1 John chapter 3. When we talk about the doctrine of adoption, we tend to think of it principally as it exists vertically, right? So far, we've talked mostly about father and about sons and daughters, and sons and daughters and father. We tend to look at this vertically, and that's how most folks do. With that said, the doctrine of adoption does not just inform our understanding of our relationship with God, it also informs our understanding of our relationship with the people in the very row next to you and the people who fill this room. The doctrine of adoption informs your understanding not only of your relationship with God, but with the other people in this room. Why? Why is that? Well, it's principally because of this. Because when God adopted you, he also adopted you. And what does that make you? It makes you siblings. It makes you brothers. It makes you sisters. It makes you children collectively. And that's why we call this a family of God, right? We're not a bunch of lone rangers who all happen to be occupying at the same time and space. We are a family, and we're intended to be. So the doctrine of adoption doesn't just inform our understanding of our relationship with God, but also with the people next to us. Also the people who fill this room, and not just this room, but the church universal, the church around the globe this morning. You and I are part of an eternal family, and on this side of glory, that family can be dysfunctional. At times it could be like the Adams family. You know, It could be something that's not quite what you would esteem it to be. That can be true, and yet the good news is this. In due time, in due time, we will all be gathered around the throne, the family circle, right? We will be gathered around the throne together, and at that moment, in our glorified estate, which we saw in today's text, in our glorified estate, all the sin and stains and divisions and other things, the frictions that can exist between us now will be gone. It will be a thing of the past, and we will have common purpose at that time, and we'll have eternal unstained affection for one another. So praise God by which he has called us his children. Praise God for that, but praise God also by which he calls us brothers and sisters together in this room. Let's pray. To search through an archive of Dr. Holt's previous sermons, please visit us at fpcgulfport.org or you can look us up at sermonaudio.com.